Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. We are way back in the Old Testament this morning to Exodus chapter 3. I'm doing a series of messages leading up to Easter on resurrection, but uh, we're doing these from Old Testament passages which remind us of the resurrection that Jesus will fulfill, of course, when he comes and uh, dies and is resurrected. So we'll cover that on Easter morning. But for right now, we're going through some of these great passages in the Old Testament that speak about these things. And today, we have a familiar passage in Exodus chapter 3 of the burning bush and of Moses at the burning bush, or Charlton Heston, if that looks more familiar to you. And of course, this is where in our text, specifically verses 13, 14, and 15, where Moses will learn the name of God as Lord, as the I am that I am. Also, this text will be used, as we'll see in a minute, as a key text in the New Testament in the words of Jesus to show that resurrection is coming, not only for himself, but for everyone. And so our teaching on resurrection and the teaching on eternal life is so important today. Let me explain why I think. We in our country, as well as around the world, are experiencing a moral crisis. Well, strike that word moral out and put theological in there. We're, we're experiencing a theological crisis, and that is that uh, we have a result of a hundred years of being taught atheism, where we believe there is no life after death. I think that the majority of our people have actually come to that. We've had a hundred years of teaching evolution, which means there was no God and we didn't come from God, a hundred years of correcting the Word of God that surely it's not true and not consistent, a hundred years of deserting the church as membership and attendance continues to drop, and a hundred years of godless and churchless and Bibleless and fatherless families. Now add to that Hollywood, commercialism, the music industry, socialism, and we might even add the professional sports industry, and throw in, by the way, sex and drugs and wealth and public schools and gender dysphoria and all the rest, and we have a new social agenda in our world, which basically is betting on the fact that there's not going to be any life after death. As a matter of fact, I think that is the atheist wager. The atheist wager is when you die, all of those things that those Christians have said for 2,000 years won't come true. Matter of fact, there's a famous wager by Blaise Pascal some hundreds of years ago now where his famous wager was this. The Christian says that there is life after death, and the atheist says there is not. Well, for the Christian, if he dies and the atheist is right, he loses nothing. But if he dies and he's right, he gains eternal life. To the atheist, however, his wager is that uh, if he dies and he's right, he gains nothing. And if he dies and the Christian is right, he loses his soul for eternity. 
And really, that's the wager that is going on now, and that is, is there life after death? The Apostle Paul put it this way, by the way, in 1 Corinthians, when he said, if I have served the Lord all my life, what advantage is it if the dead don't rise? Then he says, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That was Paul, that's what Paul said. And even Jesus, in explaining that rich man who was going to tear down his barns and build bigger barns, and that rich man said, my soul, you are rich and fat. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus answered him by saying, you fool, tonight your soul shall be required of you. Then shall, who, shall these things be. And so that is... I think, become the American pledge, the American pledge of allegiance, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow you die, and that's all. So don't worry about all of these other things. There's no God, there's no life after death, and certainly no resurrection from the dead. So I think our passages that we're, to, that we're studying, both in the Old Testament and as we lead up to Easter, are very important. And this great passage in Exodus chapter 3 will contradict that new social agenda. It will tell us specifically that Jesus Christ has always lived. He lives now. He died for our sins. He rose bodily from the grave, and he lives eternally. And you will live eternally somewhere yourself. And our passage will explain that to us. I want us to start, though, and uh, Kent took us back to read verse 1. I want to read verse 2. And I want you to notice an expression here, and then we want to do a little exploring of this before we get to our text, which will be 13, 14, and 15. It says in verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. Well, you've known that story, you've read about it, and you've seen it often. But I want us to think about this expression, the angel of the Lord, because that is who is talking to Moses throughout this whole passage. And if we don't understand that, we won't get the gist of the whole passage. Who is this angel of the Lord and what? Now, notice in the Old Testament, when this expression comes up, it has a definite article, the angel of the Lord. When we get to the New Testament, it's always an angel of the Lord. In that sense, it's an angel. It's not the third person of the Godhead. But in the Old Testament, it's the angel of the Lord. Now, notice if we drop down to verse 4, it will say, so when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. This angel of the Lord is there called Lord, and he's called God. And notice verse 6, moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This angel of the Lord is deity. This angel of the Lord shows himself to be God. I want you to turn to a couple places with me, okay? So hold your place right here, and first of all, go back to Genesis 16, where we have the story of Hagar. If you remember, Abraham and Sarah had a handmaid named Hagar who had a child by Abraham, 
And so she and her child were sent away. And so we find in Genesis 16 and verse 7, notice she's out in the desert with her child. It says, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The angel of the Lord did. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord said to her. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her. But notice verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. El Roy, that is one of the Old Testament names for God, the God who sees. Have I also seen him who sees? And so she realizes that the angel of the Lord is God who sees. Go with me to Genesis 22. I know we're skipping through these quickly just to show this point. And here is Abraham offering his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. And we find in Genesis 22 and verse 11, it says, The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, Here am I. Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. So here's the angel of the Lord talking to Abraham. Don't, don't kill Isaac. I have something else for you. So then notice verse 15. Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Now I have also a reference to Judges chapter 6. Let me leave that for you to go to later. You may not be able to find that book. Judges chapter 6 is the story of Gideon where the angel of the Lord also comes to Gideon and Gideon also addresses him as God. And those are just three of about uh, eight or ten Old Testament passages where this very same thing happens. I like Wayne Grudem's uh, re, uh, conclusion of this. In his theology book, he says, These are clear instances of the angel of the Lord, or the angel of God, appearing as God himself, perhaps more specifically as God the Son, taking on a human body for a short time in order to appear to human beings. In other words, this angel of the Lord is God the Son. Jesus Christ, in a pre-incarnate appearance, Christophany, they call it, where he appears uh, with a bodily shape and form so that they know that he's talking to them, and yet he's always addressed, of course, as God in these things. So Jesus is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. Jehovah, we'll see, is what the, the name I am or Lord means. He's the Lord of the New Testament, and that's why he's called the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're going to see here is in our passage that the deity of Jesus Christ is expressly made here as the Lord himself, as the angel of the Lord, appears to Moses in this in this uh, passage. So, you have in your bulletin some notes. Uh, you can follow my outline or on the screen if you're watching. And I want, I want us to notice three things about Moses, and then three things about God, and then three things about all of us. 
in these three verses, 13, 14, and 15, in this chapter. So, first of all, three things about Moses in verse 13. Let me read it to you again. Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, they say, Well, what is his name? Then what shall I say to them? Basically, I say, I see these three things. You see them in your notes. He wanted to go, but should he? He wanted to speak, but what does he say? And he wants to know something he, he needs to know before he goes. And that's true, I think, of all of us. Notice he said, first of all, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, okay, you're sending me back to Egypt. I'm going back there where they, they may still be hunting my life. Uh, what am I going to say? Look, look back up at verse 11 where you have this. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Interestingly, in chapters 13 and 14 here in Exodus, Moses makes five excuses why he's unqualified to go. And I think you could probably, every one of us could write our name at the top of this list and say these same sayings to God. First of all, in 3.11, who am I? And God will answer, I'll go with you. In verse 13, he's going to say, I'm not very smart. I need to know some things. God's going to say, I am smart. In chapter 4 and verse 1, he's going to say, I'm not very persuasive. And God will answer, I am all-powerful. In chapter 4 and verse 10, he says, I'm not eloquent. And God will say, who made your mouth? I made your mouth. And in chapter 4, verse 13, send someone else. And he says, no, I'll send Aaron with you. The message, folks, is not about you. The message is about God. The message is about His Word and what He has said. It's not what you say. It's not what you can figure out. It's what God has said when He sends you to go somewhere. We often want to go, but we make these same excuses, don't we? I don't know if I can say the right thing. I don't, I'm not very smart. I, maybe you should use someone else, and we make all of these same excuses, and God keeps coming back with the same answers. I'm going with you. You just say what I want you to say. Well, secondly, he wanted to speak, I see here, when I go to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, then, then what's going to happen? I want you to, to listen to, uh, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1, when God calls Jeremiah to go preach, and Jeremiah turns out to be one of the major prophets, the weeping prophet, uh, that prophet that saw the destruction of Jerusalem and all the rest. So in, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. And I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then said I, Jeremiah speaking, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth. For you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put, his, put forth his hand and touched my mouth, 
And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. God just says to us, folks, just go say what I've said. Just go give the good news. Just go repeat what I've asked you to repeat. It's a good thing, really, that we don't have to rely on our own words, isn't it? The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides asunder the soul and spirit and joint and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Not you, not your mouth, and not your brain. It's God's word that does these things. So he wanted to go, he wanted to speak, and thirdly, he did want to know something. So what is his name? I mean, what am I going to say if I, if I go? I'm not a theologian. <laughs> I don't know these things. What, what should I say? I want to just explain, and of course the rest of the passage is going to answer that uh, as uh, verse 14 uh, gives us the answer. I want you to just think right now that you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a Ph.D. You don't have to be a pastor or a, a missionary, an evangelist, or any of those things. You have what it takes. I was thinking that some of the greatest men in history that preached the Word had no formal training or education. William Carey, the father of modern missions, who went and spent his life in India, never had a formal education. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress and spent those years in prison, never went to school. Moody didn't. Spurgeon didn't. And can anybody preach today like, like D.L. Moody or Charles Spurgeon? No formal education. Let me tell you this story because I know it and I, I, I studied the life of Bunyan myself too. Bunyan was a tinker, which means he fixed pots and pans. And that's, that was his only skill. He would go around from house to house and he would tink on your pots and pans, called a tinker. And he would... He would straighten out the dents and straighten out the pots and whatever you needed done. So he was called a tinker. Well, God called him to preach. And he, when he did, he had this amazing ability to preach God's word with power. He even spent, of course, years and years in prison where he wrote most of Pilgrim's Progress and so forth. But he became a popular preacher because of this because people just wanted to hear him. So he would often go down to London uh, and he would speak uh, to churches in London. And so this one time he's speaking at Zor Chapel, which was a large building that would hold a few thousand people. And he would fill it. People would come to hear John Bunyan. In the, in, this is in the 1600s. Well, the most educated Puritan Christian in that day was called, his name's John Owen. He was a brilliant theologian. He also knew King Charles II, who was the, the, the king of, of England. And the two of them together were friends, and they went to hear Bunyan, the tinker, speak at Zor Chapel. So here's the greatest theologian of the day. Here's the king of the day. Owen is a Christian. The king was not a, a believer. And so they're listening, and Owen is just engrossed in what Bunyan is saying. And the king is put, he can't stand it. You know, he's bored stiff. And so the king says to John Owen, how can you stand to listen to the prate of a tinker? You know, this babbling of a tinker. And the greatest theologian of the day turned back to the king and said, I would give all 
of my learning to have the power of that tinker. God gave Bunyan that power. God gave Spurgeon that power. They filled that great uh, uh, church with thousands of people every week. God gave Moody that kind of power. And God can give us the power that we need to open our mouths and to speak whatever we need to speak because it's his word. It's not our wisdom and not our power, really. So a little bit about Moses here in the first verse. But secondly, we come to this great statement in verse 14. And I want to tell you three things about God. And the first one is, he is the self-existent one. Now, when I say God, we've already discovered this is God the Son. And of course, God the Son is God. God the Son is deity. God the Holy Spirit is deity. And so we know that. But notice he says, here's his answer to what Moses should say. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. It's an amazing statement with a small grammatical tool. Just say, I am. John Gill lived in the 1600s. John Gill and his great commentary, I have it on my shelf and I like to read the old thing. He says, it denotes his eternity and immutability, his constancy and faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. For it includes all time, past, present, and to come. And he says, the sense is, not only, listen to this, I am what I am at present, but I am what I have been, and I am what I shall be, and I shall be what I am. That's the I am that I am. Ryrie in his theology book, of course, said some theologies use the word aseity, aseity, to denote the self-existence of God, the say, God depends only on himself. If God exists endlessly, then he never came into existence, nor was he ever caused to come into existence. He is endlessly self-existent. And that's what is being said here, is endlessly self-existent. Now, here's that simple grammatical tool, Yahweh. You go back and say, Yahweh has sent me. We have an expression in English, I am. It's a simple little to-be verb, an intransitive verb, I am, or you are, or he, she, or it is, I am. If you say I am in Hebrew, you say Yahweh. That's how you pronounce it. Guess what God's name then is? Yahweh and Elohim and Adonai. You go say Yahweh has sent me. Now, if we say it in the New Testament language, we say it as I, I am, ego, me. I am, I am. Well, interesting, and I want you to, to hear it, and, and let me quote, you know, Dr. John MacArthur. He said this about that word. W, by the way, Y-H-W-H. Interesting that those Hebrews, when they wrote the Old Testament, put no vowels in the words. Did you, did you ever know that? It's just consonants. And so this actually is Y-H-W-H. It's called a tetragrammaton. And MacArthur said, it was so sacred that it should not be pronounced. And so the Masoretes, the translators, inserted the vowels 
from the name Adonai to remind themselves not to pronounce or to pronounce it differently when reading it instead of saying Yahweh. Because the name of God they thought was so holy, you should never say it. It, it would be some kind of blasphemy if I did. So I'll pronounce it differently every time I come to it. That's how holy they thought this name was. Let me give you a couple New Testament examples of it. Remember in John chapter 8, Jesus is being uh, questioned about who he is. And he says, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews to him, Thou art not fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Listen, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, ego emi, I, I am. Before Abraham was, not I was, I am. I've always existed. I was before Abraham, I'm after Abraham. I still am. Let me give you another example of this use in the New Testament. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas comes with the soldiers to take him, at least 50 soldiers, if not more. And they come to Jesus, and he said, Whom seek ye? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, Ego and me, I, I am, or as we have it in English, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him as soon as he had said to them, Ego and me, I, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Fifty soldiers with all of their armor, because he says, I am that I am, they fall backward on the ground. You're about to come and take a hold of the eternal God, the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, and no wonder they fell down. But they did it anyway, didn't they? And so Yahweh in the Old Testament, by the way, in the German translations of our Bible, the Ys become Js and the Ws become Vs, and so instead of saying Yahweh, they say Jahveh or Jehovah. And so our English word Jehovah is the same as Yahweh. And when it appears in the Old Testament, you will see it as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord in capital letters. That's Yahweh. In the New Testament, they don't do that. They just have it as Lord. But when we say the Lord Jesus Christ, we're saying the same thing. Now, what's the point here? The point is, that here is the angel of the Lord, who is the second person of the Trinity, who is saying to Moses back then, I am that I am. I am self-existent. I've always existed. I always will exist. When we get to Easter and talk about the resurrection and we understand that he gives his life for this world, is it any wonder then that they can't take his life totally, that he will live and come back to life because he has no sin, and he is the eternal one, dying for us and resurrecting for us. Now, I say he's the subject. He's the subject of speaking. Thus shall you say. You go back and give them my name. You go back and tell them who I am. If we go and witness for our Lord, if we try to explain 
God's plan of salvation? Do we explain ourselves? No, we explain what Jesus did and who he was and how he died for our sins and resurrected. Thus shall you say. You go back and say these things. Or let me give you our great commission, as we call it, Matthew 28, 8, 18 through 20. Jesus came and spake to them and said, listen, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. <laughs> really? Yes, because he is the I am that I am. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, right? You go tell them what I've said, just as God was saying to Moses. Just go say what I've said, and I will be with you always to the end of the age, because I am that I am. And so that's his commission to us. That's what we're supposed to do. He's our authority. It's as if, folks, the, the Bible is our burning bush. As Moses stood in front of that bush and this bush was not consumed and the angel of the Lord speaks to him out of the bush, you would say, whatever you say, I'm going to do. We should take God's word and really understand it as our burning bush. And whatever it says, we do. We go that way. You remember Jeremiah again, that great prophet? He, he quit at one time. He was so discouraged about what was going on, he finally quit. But then he said, I couldn't quit. I had to preach again. And he said, his word was in my heart like a burning fire. His word is in my heart like a burning fire. And then a couple chapters later, even God says back to Jeremiah, is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? That's what we speak, folks. That's what the word we bring to other people. It's not you. It's not by word or by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So he's the subject of our speaking. And then I want you to notice that then he sends us. So I am, you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I love missionaries. I love those who feel like they're sent by God on a special calling, don't you? We support them with our money. We support them with our prayers. Here are people who said, I'm going to go give my life. I'm going to give up the luxuries of this country. I'm going to give up whatever I have to give up, and I'm going to go and preach God's word to people who have never heard. What a special group of people those are. I want you to notice about these missionaries from two uh, passages in the book of Acts where Paul is going out on his missionary journeys. The first one is in Acts chapter 13 where Paul is going to leave on his first journey. He's going to go on his first of three journeys to preach the word. Now it says, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, and it gives the names, and Paul and Barnabas are among those. And it says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the, the Holy Spirit said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. I'm going to call these missionaries to my work. Then Having fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them, that is, the church did, and they sent them away. The, the, the language literally means they released them. They let them go. Holy Spirit, if you're calling them to go, we won't hold them back. 
we'll let them go. And then it says, and so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. Our missionaries, those that preach the gospel that way, are, are called by the Holy Spirit, sent out by the Holy Spirit, and all you and I can do is let them go and support them while they go. That's not the end of the story because when you get to the end of Paul's first missionary journey in chapter 14, at the end in verse 26, it says, uh, there they sailed back to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. And now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them. A missionary comes back to us and he gives us a report. What? About what we have done? No, what God has done and what we participated in, what we helped support. They come back and tell us what God has done. I can't wait till this June to hear Tim and Barbara Watley are going to be back in the States on, uh, on furlough, and they're going to be with us again. And uh, how many times do I read to you about our Ukrainian guys, about Tim Smith over there in the Middle East and all of these men? We, we praise the Lord. Tim just sent me a text this morning that two more Afghanis received Christ as Savior through his preachers that are preaching in, uh, in that country. So what a, what a great thing and privilege it is for us to support them. And so every one of us is sent in a way, right? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. I am with you to the end of the earth. We all have a mission. We're all sent out by the word of God, by this burning bush right here in front of us to go and be witnesses to. And he'll be with us all also to the end of the age. Now, I want to make one more point, and that's in verse 15. Three things about humanity that I think verse 15 shows. The first one is, you will live forever. And secondly, your fathers and ancestors have lived forever. And not only that, your children will live forever. So read again, verse 16 or 15, excuse me, moreover, God said to Moses, thus shall you say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And this is my name forever. This is my memorial to all generations. And isn't that my point from the, from the first here this morning? Will we live forever? Is there life after death or are the atheists right? Well, here is the Lord God of eternity saying, you will live forever, your fathers are living forever, and your children will live forever. Eternal souls, that's what each of us are. In the New Testament, we have a great quotation, and that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all give the story about, uh, remember the story that the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees come to Jesus and they say, well, here's, here's a case. A, a, a woman's husband dies. The leveret laws of the Old Testament say, well, then the brother has to marry the woman and raise up children to his brother. Well, she, so the brother marries the woman. He dies. And then uh, there's a third brother. So the third brother marries her and he dies. And finally, there are seven brothers who all marry this woman and they all die. And if I were number eight, I think I would have learned the lesson by now, but uh, we're not told whether there was an eight or not. And so the question to Jesus was, well, in the resurrection, whose, whose wife will she be then of these seven men? And Jesus answered this way, 
even Moses, Luke 20, verse 37, even Moses showed in the burning bush that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. By the way, I should have quoted the verse before, when we get to heaven, we'll be as the angels in heaven, neither marrying nor giving in marriage. So it's a mute question. You don't have to worry about it. But the point is, these men who didn't even believe in life after death, he said, didn't God say to Moses, I am that I am? I am the God of your fathers and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yes, he said that. That is what is being said here. Doesn't the Bible teach us to be absent from the body is to be what, folks? Present with the Lord. When that body is lying before us and is lifeless, what do we know? There is life that went somewhere. And that life is living right now, by the way, in heaven or in hell. The life that leaves this body goes to one of two places. Then there will be a resurrection where the body and the soul are put back together, and then they will live forever in heaven or in hell. There's no in-between place. There's no go-between. There's no going back and forth between. And by the way, at, fun at funerals for an atheist, there's no eulogizing the atheist into heaven. You can't start talking about how good of a person he was. Either he's saved or he's not. Either he's a child of God or he's not. And so even the Lord pointed out the resurrection that way. So we will live forever. Your fathers live forever. And that's what our verse is saying here too. Uh, these are the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want you to know your ancestors are living forever. Your parents who have gone on to, uh, to life after death, your grandparents and all the rest all the way back, they're alive somewhere today. As a matter of fact, every person that's ever existed from Adam and Eve are alive somewhere today. No one has ceased to exist. And so since that is true, those Christian ancestors you have, you'll see again. You'll see them in heaven. And those non-Christian ancestors are in hell forever. That's just a fact. That's what the Bible teaches. So there's a verse in Matthew 8, 11, where he said, I say to you that many shall come in that day after resurrection. Many shall come from the east, the west, and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. When Jesus reigns on the earth, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to be there in the kingdom of God. But the children of the kingdom that is, the Jews who didn't believe, shall be cast out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus also said, "These will go. some will go away into everlasting punishment and some to everlasting life. And so that's where we all go after we die. I'm just saying to you, will you see your, sa your saved loved ones again? If you know Christ as Savior and they knew Christ as Savior, he is the God of them and he's the God of you. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are living forever. You will live forever. And how will that be? Resurrection. Through resurrection. And why do we have that? Because Jesus was resurrected. There's a one last thought here I have, and that is that because in uh, the end of verse 15, the memorial to all generations is mentioned, and I say, your children will live forever. All generations will live. I'm glad about that. I'm glad that I'll know my children 
uh, who know the Lord. I'll know them in heaven. Psalm 128 says, The Lord bless you out of Zion. And may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children and peace on Israel. Ezekiel, speaking of the same thing, said in 37, Then shall they dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwell, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be with them as a prince forever. And then of that eternal time, Isaiah 66, 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain forever. We will live forever. You remember that David had a baby by Bathsheba and that baby died. You remember that? And he was mourning and praying and praying that God would let the baby live, but the baby died. And when the baby died, he got up, he washed himself, he went about his business. And they said, why are you doing this now? The baby has died. And what was David's answer? I, that baby can't come back to me, but I can go to him. I'll go and be with that child forever. That's the promise that all of us have, folks. I tell you, atheism is a lie of the devil. He lied the same lie to Adam and Eve. He has lied ever since. He even lies to himself. But there is life after death for every human being because we're an eternal soul and we have to exist forever. The only question is, where will you spend eternity? Will you spend eternity with the Lord and with those loved ones who know Christ as Savior forever? Or will you be alone in darkness, in torment, in hell forever? It's your choice now. That's why God has given us this time. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you don't know Christ as Savior, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Be sure you know him as your Savior. The angel of the Lord proved it to us, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself, when he walks on this earth, proved it to us. And we should know that, and we should come to him as Savior. Stand now with me, if you will, as we... Think about these things that we have read. What wonderful truths that we've seen here in the Old Testament. Let's apply them to our own hearts and let's ask God to speak to our hearts in the way that he should. Let's pray together. Father, we know that you are the eternal, self-existent God and that you dwell as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in one essence expressed to us in these three persons. We thank you for that, Father. And we thank you that you have manifested yourself to us and told us about yourself. And not only that, told us about ourselves, that we have to live forever somewhere. And so, Father, I pray that as we think about these things, they would comfort the hearts of your children and those who know you as Savior. But, Father, it would convict the hearts of those who don't know you, that they might be prepared for eternity as well. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We thank you for that great promise. May they call on you just now and ask you to save them from their sin. And may wherever your word is preached today, may this message be uh, sent out and may souls believe on you. So bless as we sing. Speak to our hearts in the way that we need. Receive the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Gordon's going to come and lead us in the song. Our invitation is always open as we sing. I'm at the front. 
And even as our service is closed, our invitation remains open. You can come and, and uh, see me after the service and say, I need to get this taken care of. So you do what the Lord is leading you to do. Gordon will lead us in the song. <laughs>